happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 277 on December 22nd, 2022. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. But it is... 20-something below zero here. So uh, beauty is maybe in the eye of the beholder. So joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight this evening, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am thankful to be joining you and appreciative again of uh, of rescheduling. So we apologize to Peggy George, who, um, you know, is one of our faithful live, live viewers. But I'm actually joining from Manhattan, Kansas, where my watch says it's negative two. I think we were down to like negative 21 or something like that wind chill today. So fairly brisk. So I've been visiting my parents and um, uh, thankful to be here because, hey, a chance to sit down with the the infamous and wise Dr. Neifer as he's as he sits sits by the by the sea with his uh, bear blanket. It's a privilege, ladies and gentlemen. So one that I don't take lightly. So. Uh, thank you for uh, putting a lion's share of the links in tonight, and I think you carried some forward as well. So I dropped dropped a few in. What what are we going to do if someone happens to be hearing us for the first time tonight? Well, um, we're going to take a look at some news that has happened in 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 this past week, and 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 some news that's gone a little longer, and try to shoot them through the educational prism to see if we can't get any insights that might be able to help uh, teachers, principals, administrators, curriculum directors, IT directors, integration folks, kind of think about technology in a new and enlightened way. And tonight we have several links uh, uh, coming our direction. A quick podcasting note: uh, lots of AI stuff going on, and I. Uh, shared a bunch of links tonight, but it's also a rabbit hole, so we might want to be careful before we pick at that. Um, we might talk a little bit about Twitter, um, social media news, uh, and I would imagine tonight we're going to talk about TikTok a little bit, um, space news, privacy news, some security articles, some Apple news, some media literacy news, um, some miscellaneous, and then we will ring in the new year a week and a half early by talking about what is happening in 2023 in regards to public domain uh, uh, resources and one tonight um, on this week's Geeks of the Week. Um, Dr. Fryer, is there a particular place you'd like to start tonight, sir? Yeah, let, before we jump into some rabbit holes, and I definitely want to talk about Twitter and Mastodon and uh, Elon and those things. Uh, let's do a quick one that's kind of a follow-up for things we've talked about before. Um I put it under miscellaneous. This is Axios on December 19th. Epic Games fined $520 million in FTC's Fortnite privacy case. We spent a bit of time, um, it's been several months ago, I think, you know, talking about Fortnite, talking about Apple, and uh, a lot of that controversy was around stores. And I think we mentioned maybe in the show last week or the week before, there's been a European uh, ruling, I guess, and Apple is poised to allow alternate app stores in Europe. Um, but this case really has to do with uh, young kids and the exploitation of them by Epic Games in Fortnite. So the highlights uh, are that well, the FTC says that Epic Games use, quote, dark patterns or design tricks to, quote, dupe millions of players into making unintentional purchases. They also allege that Epic knew children were playing Fortnite and collected data from them without parental consent. Its default settings were harming young users. Um, it also has to pay $245 million in addition to the $275 million, which is violating the COPA rule. 
uh, for this dark billing and uh, dark patterns in billing practices. And it, the FTC says Epic ignored more than one million user complaints and repeated employee concerns that huge numbers of users were being wrongfully charged. So I think this is an outstanding um, ruling by the FTC. I do not think that we want any kind of gaming company or other company or group knowingly uh, flout, flaunting the rules in terms of um, kids and data collection and, and the reason that we have, you know, COPA uh, and, and, and FERPA and these other laws to try to protect privacy and specifically to protect kids. Um, I don't know that this is going to be much of a dent in Epic's, you know, war chest. I, I have no idea, but I think they're a pretty, pretty wealthy company that probably can handle this, uh, you know, kind of like Google, maybe not at the same scale. But anyway, this uh, this sounds like a positive um, development. Any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess my first thought is that, I mean, this is the company that bought Apple over the 30 percent uh, that Apple wants to charge for pass through charges. And here they are. um uh, uh uh, flaunting rules to make even more money, right? So there's a uh, uh, clean hands would not be the way I describe this. Uh, and and I guess you, since this is a, a fine that's been administered, that they've been found guilty of all these 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 uh, uh, violations. That itself is disturbing. And um, the bottom line too is that when you have such a viral game like Fortnite uh, uh, was and, and continues to be in a lot of cases. Uh, with kids, then I think you have extra responsibilities that, that, that to make sure that, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with profiting, but you can't do it, uh, through trickery and you can't do it on the backs of kids. And, um, that's something that I think, uh, uh, it's, it's good that this is coming to light. And I think it's an important, uh, a piece of the larger puzzle. Um, I want to riff for a second and then pull in the, the couple of articles about, um, the app store news that's happening. Um, these go ahead, Wes. One quick thing about default settings. So I think an outcome of this is going to be the FTC requiring them to change default settings. And I don't know if that has precedent as far as the FTC telling a software company, you know, you've got to change your settings. And I think, I think, I know that there's a lot of hesitation about regulation, but Discord is an example where I know I have a lot of middle schoolers that are using Discord. Yeah. You can turn settings on to be protective, but those aren't on by default. It connects to AI because um, the AI tool MidJourney, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, uses Discord. And I'm not advocating, you know, for for you know kids and preteens to be on Discord, but I think I'm not aware of a precedent where that's happened before. Do you remember the government telling a, a software no. company how they had to set their default settings? No, and and now that you say that out loud, that's a, I mean. That, that that certainly seems like a regular a, a a regulatable thing, right? In from the start of, uh, or from the standpoint of that part of the problem with a lot of apps that I think are a bit abusive in nature is that if their um, default settings are to be more open or less private or uh, too easy to purchase or any of those pieces, that becomes very problematic from a a, a safety and a security standpoint. All right. Well, segue us to some uh, App Store connections here. Well, I just wanted to hi highlight a couple of articles that that are talking about what is likely happening uh, uh, in the near future. 
Uh, first, The Verge has a great article about uh, uh, Apple is preparing to allow third-party app stores on, on iPhones. And this has to do with a variety of things, um, not the least of which is uh, uh, a legal action against Apple. But they've also been working with European Union regulators in an attempt to uh, to stay off uh, bans of, of, of iOS uh, and iPad OS uh, in Europe, but the bottom line is is that it's likely that there's some kind of side load or other strategy coming soon to add other app stores or more maybe even directly download apps from the internet. And um, there's a, a, another great article from a couple of days ago from iMore that talks a little bit about what this means in the bigger context. And some developers. Um, are, are, you know, have been advocating for the ability to sideload because of things like the 30% issue through the app store when you're using Apple payment systems. And remind, um, us, there, remind us what sideloading means. So sideloading is, well, it can be a couple of different things, but in context of, of the Apple architecture, it is essentially loading an app directly without going through the app store. And sideloading usually requires uh, what is referred to as jailbreaking, which is uh, essentially turning off the security um, on your device for the purposes of installing an alternative app store or allowing you the ability to install directly. And um, I used to be a sideloader back in the day. Dr. Fryer, I believe you were as well. Um, now I just, it just, there's no way I would do that ever. Right. And, and I did some cool stuff with sideloading too. It, it installed a, um, uh, early days would install, install an app store called Cinda that had a lot of kind of cool apps on it. Um, my favorite one was that I was an early adopter of the unlimited iPad SIM. Um, so it was on AT&T, you pay $20 a month and you can have unlimited access, but that was before the days of being able to utilize that, uh, uh, as a hotspot device. Um, and so I had an app that allowed me to free hotspotting through, uh, AT&T and, um, it was, it was very useful. Um, and I uh, regrettably gave up that SIM. Uh, it was seven or eight years ago. I wish I had kept it because I'd s- still love unlimited AT&T access for $25 a month, um, on my iPad. But the bottom line is, is that, uh, that sideloading process, uh, essentially turns it into a computer with relatively little security and you can download apps from anywhere. And I'm sure alternative app stores will pop up that are uh, kind of security uh, adjacent maybe, or security minded, you know, like the, the, but nothing in my mind beats the vetting that those apps would go through on the app store itself. And, and there's a couple subtleties here. Like it's not just that the, the apps themselves are very well vetted, um, uh, uh, once an app is reported as dangerous, then, then, um, Apple stops, uh, 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 having the app downloaded. Um, sometimes they will kick off the developer, which means it decreases the chance of that happening with other apps. Whereas if you're just sideloading apps or downloading them directly from the internet, that it's kind of problematic because there's, there's no, um, there's no system for security or for, for kind of a full circle experience when someone's being a bad actor. But that uh, iMore article talks about that some um, uh, some developers are thinking this is a real opportunity. Other developers, even though they have to pay a high premium to be in the app store, uh, uh, the 30% or the less if you're a smaller developer, uh, they feel as if that it's very problematic um, uh, to lose that kind of security-minded nature of the app store for the kind of wild, wild west. 
Yeah, well, did I ever tell you that AT&T called me and basically wanted me to confess to jailbreaking? Oh, no. <laughs> My two favorite functions back in that day, and I was honestly so worried about, because I was with, had been an Apple Distinguished Educator and yada, yada, <laughs> I like blogged about this under a, an alias, Sherman Nicodemus, who my mother thought was a real person. <clears throat> but anyway, you could, this is before AirPlay. And so you could mirror your phone for yeah. on your laptop. Yep. That was phenomenal yep. to be able to teach iPhoneography or what, you know, whatever. You could just show your phone and that was not possible with Quick. You can do it now with QuickTime Player for free with a cable. You can do it with Air Server. You can do it with an Apple TV. And then the other things, what you mentioned is being able to tether, but of course, AT&T can track all that. And so, yeah, anyway, they had a, had a very uncomfortable phone call where they're like, get, you know, wanting me to admit that I had, you know, jailbroken. And anyway, it's, it was, it was weird, but um, I do, I do ag- agree with Apple's point that security is super important and it can be dangerous to let people, you know, download things that aren't vetted. On the other hand, and this has been a while back, we covered an article on the show that talked about how the vetting process, we, 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 maybe some people tend to have a lot of faith in that vetting process. But if you actually look at the kinds of investigations that are being done, it's not like uber savvy security professionals are always doing the approving. But I think that Apple does have a better track record than, let's say, the Google uh, Play Store, you know, in terms of, of malware and bad actors and things like that. So it's going to continue to be an issue. And we, you know, I think one of our continuing mantras is stay savvy, stay safe, you know, and so stay safe means being careful with your Chrome extensions, being, you know, careful with software, um, you know, being careful with your apps. So it is, I think, yeah. a foreshadowing, though, of what is going to come because just as GDPR has had some positive privacy impacts, I think, for us here in terms of how software developers and social media platforms have responded. I think I think this is probably a net positive, but we'll just have to see. Yep, totally. Okay, well, do you want to pop back here? Do we have anything else? Um, let's see. Why don't we... Why don't we... I, I, there's one I really, really for sure want to talk about, and... Um, Hmm, it ties to Twitter and uh, did I put it under media literacy? It's the one that I think I put it under social media. Um, is it the FBI article? Well, the FBI article is pretty good, but well, here's a quick one. Okay. Cory Doctorow. I don't even know. Is he an anarchist? He might be, um, but he's definitely a big privacy freedom guy, EFF supporter. Um, I just have a link. This is, a, this will be a first. Here's a link to my Mastodon post where I just uh, pulled out a quote, but he has an article um, on his website, pluralistic.net. And it, and this is from December 19th. It's called Better Failure for Social Media. But this is really quick. I, he says Facebook downranks content that links to other sites on the Internet. So when I'm sharing anything, but like cooking videos or whatever, if you have a link to another website. It kind of ties a little bit to what's happened with Elon last weekend and all this stuff about Mastodon links being banned and Instagram links, you know, being banned, but then that policy was taken down. Anyway, I didn't know that, that Facebook will actually downrank. In other words, not algorithmically favor your post as much. If you link out, you have an outbound link. And I've, I kind of know that they want you to upload the video directly to the site. But anyway, I had never seen that before, didn't know that. And that was one little thing. This, the article is, is about other issues too, but 
had you heard that before? And I guess no. I before he's right about that. So, well, and and that concerns me as someone that does social media work for for nonprofit organizations. Um, I I take some side contracts, uh, to do to do social media work, and I guess that would change would change my mind in some of the strategies that I would use there. I mean, it's pretty hard to promote things where you have to sign up on the internet if you get downlink when you put a link to the internet, right? So that's a little problematic with itself. But I mean, I I guess I that just seems, you know, it, it selfish, but Facebook is selfish. So that's the what, way it is. What some authors were writing about, maybe we'll get into a little more of this, is that, you know, it, it wasn't unprecedented for um, for Elon Musk to want to limit the use of links on his platform. For instance, uh, TikTok flat out doesn't let you put any links into any posts at all. Uh, Instagram wants you to put a link in your profile, but your links aren't clickable when you put them in a post or, or even a comment. You know, people are having to, to do some copying and pasting. It's not just, you know, you can click and go. Very interesting about the kinds of limits and restrictions that are that are algorithmically um, put in place. And then let me see if I got to be able to find this article because this was I thought about highlighting it in advance um, because this is one that was. But yeah, there it is. <sighs> this is George Lakoff, his Substack from December 14th. It's called Algorithm Warfare. How Elon Musk uses Twitter to control brains. So this will throw us here just a little bit into some some Twitter conversation. I have been wrestling, and this isn't just George Lakoff. He writes this with Gil Durham, and this is a substack called Frame Lab. Um, I'm familiar with George Lakoff because there's several books that he wrote about. Don't think of an elephant, and he's like a strategist for uh, Democratic candidates, and he's into into. Um, I, I know him from Miguel Gulen, and this is years ago, and I have not actually read his books. But here's the point. I have been wrestling, as many people have, I'm sure, with whether to stick with Twitter. And do I go all in with Mastodon? And this article, Algorithmic Warfare, How Elon Musk Uses Twitter to Control Brains, talks about an article back in 2017 where these two authors, and I had not seen this before, Gil Duran and George Lakoff, um, published this taxonomy of Trump tweets, and they talked about the, basically the savvy way that Donald Trump used Twitter during his presidency for what they called preemptive framing, diversion, deflection, and a trial balloon. And they make a very persuasive case that that's exactly what Elon Musk is doing as well. And how incredibly dangerous it is for society writ large for a single individual who is quite prone to rash decision-making and it's kind of a loose cannon, um, but is also very explicitly, well, a troll and pushing um, a very conservative uh, right-wing agenda. And there's an article reference that I put in into the show notes from the New York Times, um, which is related to this, I guess, and I'll mention it. This is from earlier in um, December, December 2nd. Hate speeches rise on Twitter is unprecedented, researchers find. And I'll have to share this as a shortened URL because the gift links on the New York Times are so long. But it is really horrific how much hate speech has increased on the platform since Elon has decimated the safety and moderation, you know, staff. And so that Lakeoff article, and this is, I'm just committing it to you as well, for my own thinking, really has me considering like, 
I think that if a large number, and I've read people say this, a large number of journalists leave Twitter. ProPublica is one. I think that all their journalists are now. It's super interesting to see when you click a link on a journalist's article, do they still list their Twitter or do they list Mastodon? And I'm seeing more um, journalists list Mastodon. If a if the if the overwhelming majority of journalists leave Twitter, that is going to, in my opinion, make it sort of like a truth social or a uh, parlor where there there are a lot more um, we could say um, right leaning you know individuals, but they just don't have the potential to impact and sway the the news cycle. And I and you know this obviously this is political. We're not a political show, but social media and technology has huge intersections to all this. And I think I have expressed before, you know, my own frustration that for for four years, you know, really whatever President Trump decided to tweet, you know, became a huge deal that people made a big thing over. That's happening with Elon right now. That's a great article um, that Lakoff and um, get his name right, um, Gilduran wrote. And so I cannot. I'm not writing today a post that says I'm done with Twitter. Um, there's another article that I put in here by another person that I really respect a lot. Um, and it's from Ethan Zuckerman on November 7th. Should you leave Twitter for Mastodon? Uh, he basically says, no, we need to use all these platforms. Don't leave them. Keep on seeing what's happening. Let's have lots of conversations, but also let's not be on a single one. So anyway, lots of thinking around that. Um, but I'll say that, I'm really, really enjoying Macedon. It certainly is more of an early adopter, more challenging environment than Twitter, but I'm really digging it and I'm finding it to be my primary right now. But that article really had me think about these big implications that that it has. And we've we really have seen in especially last week and just Musk doing some really ugly things. And he's been saying and doing ugly things for a long time. Yeah. So do you want to touch that one? Or if you want to just move on, we can also do that because there's a lot of mm-hmm. political to all that too. Yeah. Well, and I mean, yeah, the, the logarithmic warfare uh, kind of metaphor there, I think is a really important one. And it, it's a much more nuanced answer about why someone want to control uh, these airwaves. But the part for me, that's just been really hard to wrap my brain around um, the, the, the several things Um I don't know how you can call yourself a free speech absolutist and then ban journalists from from the platform because they said uh, naughty things to, or things you didn't like um, or report on things that, you know, are interesting or certainly public uh, uh, interesting because of the, the public nature of, of, of Mr. Musk. Um, I also uh, don't think you can run a website by taking polls of its users all the time, right, in regards to features. Um, it's not a very statistically legitimate way to get the opinion of all users. And um, that, I think, is problematic as well. Um, I can't say that I'm loving Mastodon. I'm tolerating it right now. Um, that said, I've only had it on my phone for the last 48 hours, um, I, in, in part because... Um, the website or the, the setup of the app, you know, required that you had, you know, information I would have to, to copy and paste from uh, uh, my web or my desktop. Go ahead. Are you using Toot? Have you tried that app yet on the phone? I don't think I have. Okay, so that's that, the, one the best to, app. It's $3. I've used four or five apps. Um, and yeah, it's Toot with an exclamation point. It is a $3 app, but it is wonderful. And I've really liked it. And that's, 
I, I, I could look at my screen time and maybe I will right now because I'm sure that that has had a lot of screen time for me, but uh, it's now $4. Thank you. Um, the, which I think is pretty funny. Um, $4. For, uh, it's four now, but, uh, it could be going up too. uh, good for the two developers. Um, the, uh, so I downloaded, thank you for that. Um, but you know, it's, it discovery is harder, uh, getting a sense of the broad, uh, of what's going on is harder because, uh, when you see things like popular posts or popular topics, that's on your server, not on all of Mastodon. I think there's a lot of logistical challenges to Mastodon before it becomes a, 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 a massive platform. I did want to share a link to a video I saw, Wes, that you shared your Mastodon tips uh, 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 on your blog. Um, there's also a great video on YouTube from Jeff Jarvis, the uh, journalist and uh, kind of Google uh, advocate guy. Um, that is the co-host of This Week in Google. Uh, it's kind of his 101 on, on, on Mastodon. And, uh, it, the video is interesting because it talks about how he used to do a lot of these in the 2000s, uh, when there were new tools every other, every other day and every other week that would impact journalism. And he kind of talks about it in context of journalism. Um, and also talks about that there are, you know, legitimate servers that are hosting journalists. And he talked about how it would be interesting, for example, uh, if uh, a publication, uh, I believe he used the New Yorker, if the New Yorker created its own Mastodon server for its own journalists, right? So that, and, and if, because it's federated, you can access it from wherever you like, um, that that is interesting piece too. And I, I thought there was a lot of interesting uh, kind of what ifs he talked about there. But it's a early adopter, I think is a good description of that, Wes. And I think it, it's, it, as long as it's going to be an early adopter mode, um, I think it's going to limit its applicability to most users. Now, I do want to make a couple quick comments about my current experience on Twitter. I am tired of reading about Twitter on Twitter, right? And there's a lot of debate going on right now um, that takes away from my interest in using Twitter, which is to connect with teachers and other professionals, right? That's what I'm on Twitter for. Um, I also uh, have found it interesting that it is really clear that 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 journalists are being targeted, um, and then also open critics of, of of the current leadership at Twitter are also being targeted. And um, it's it's interesting because in some cases um, uh, it, their sin seems no worse than simply you know making snarky comments about Mr. Musk and. Um, that can't be the way free speech absolutism works. And in, in a lot of ways, I, I don't know. I, I feel like that he's engaging in a lot of the behavior that he was critical about Twitter about, but he's just getting to picking and choosing winners and losers in regards to the way that works on his website. I'll say, uh, say this in a very strident way. Elon Musk is lying when he says he is for free speech. That is a lie and it is misleading. Um, that article, Algorithm Warfare um, by Lakoff and, and Duran, you know, go, goes into some real specific examples of this. This is one of the one of the reasons it's like we are living in a psyop, a psychological yeah. operation today. And we have been forever with advertising, right? Because advertisers are always wanting brands. They're always wanting us to, you know, purchase something, to be discontented, to, to be, in, you know, envious or desirous of new things and not to be dissatisfied with our car or whatever, you know, our clothes or whatever we have. I mean, that's all been happening. But now it's at this much greater scale because politically uh, we just have, 
you know, different, different entities that um, it's, it's just really, really hard. And so anyway, I think that one of the things that is really difficult is when somebody says one thing and they're doing the opposite. I mean, we, we have to pay attention to the, the, the actual effect. And here's what I would suggest. And I'm going to say this for myself because I haven't clearly done this. What is the scenario? And then we can each think about this where we would say, okay, I'm done with Twitter. You know, I'm done with uh, using this platform. Do you have a tipping point? If As long as there's lots of people using it, will you keep using it? Because it could be Facebook. It could be Instagram. It could be something else. And, and, and really, this comes down to, I mean, there's an effect there. You mean, who did you mention that did the 101? Um, Jeff Jarvis. Jeff Jarvis. I don't know if it was Jarvis. There's someone else. And then I think he's New York. I think he's a wired article. There was a journalist who um, really backpedaled on what he had said with, with Macedon because he said, look, there's no way this can work. You know, no way this can scale. Um, and, and I think, and, and, and others have said this, you know, if Twitter had outages, if it was being going down for an hour a day or, you know, it just wasn't reliable. I, I think that would definitely be something that, that pushes people away. But I think that right now this, this really can come down to uh, some values in terms of how much you're going to tolerate uh, that Musk is doing and saying. And the thing is, there are so many people that are still there relative to Facebook. There's not as many you know people on Twitter, but Twitter has an outsized impact in large part because of journalists and because of the way that the conversations on Twitter, you know, drive mainstream media. I think just like email, if you think about a world where Microsoft controlled all email or AOL, remember when AOL was so big, there was a time when you had to be on AOL to email people on AOL. You know, I went to the Air Force Academy in 1988. We were issued Zenith 286 computers. (laughs) We had Windows 3.1. Nobody used it. It sucked. We did everything on DOS. We had an intranet. One of the, you could use a wild card. And one of my classmates allegedly had to speak to the one star general because he had sent a really negative email with a wild card asterisk that went to the entire cadet wing. But you couldn't email anyone outside of the wing. It was called an intranet. And that's the way that, you know, email was originally before it became federated. I think as a global society, we will be better served with a federated social networking platform to replace Twitter. And Macedon appears at this point to be an heir apparent. Um, but anyway, I, I think this is an absolutely fascinating conversation. A lot of people have no idea what we're talking about, like to, at holidays, right? Uh, with my my you know members of my family, and today they're like Macedon, what's that? <laughs> you know, I mean, like I just looked at my screen time. So for the last week, I averaged eight hours. I'm on break, okay? Eight hours and thirteen minutes a day. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Total screen time: forty-one hours and five minutes in the last week. But Toot, that app I told you about for Macedon. Five hours and 42 minutes. Um, interestingly, Google Maps is the next biggest, but that's because we've been driving in the car a lot. Um, oh, my gosh. We could, we could probably talk about this forever. But it's, I, this is a good thing to wrestle with, you know, and the issues that, that intersect with this as far as what is free speech and, what, you know, should an individual billionaire have such power over 
the global conversations and the global news cycle, because that's literally what Elon Musk did with his purchase is he purchased the power. This is why, and I would love for you to get to the TikTok articles you've got. I think this is one of the fundamental reasons why the United States government and a lot of officials, not just politicians, are genuinely concerned about TikTok. It's because of the Chinese governments in influencing ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, the Chinese government and also the you know a private company in China to absolutely shape public discourse, dialogue, communication, and information flow in the United States. We've said it on the show before, and it's a title of one of our past episodes. Like TikTok is the number one way that Gen Z gets their news today. Right. And that is shaped and controlled with an opaque algorithm that nobody else outside of ByteDance apparently knows and can see. And, you know, I think it's nice that it keeps it relatively clean from what I've seen. I don't think there's a lot of gore and hardcore pornography that's on there. I don't think, but what kinds of messages are being amplified or downgraded and all of that. Like it is, I think this is an absolutely ginormous issue. And so we've talked on the show last week and I mean, we have other articles about, you know, federal government. I think in the latest funding bill, there was something snuck in that, that bans TikTok on all there is government devices. Yeah. Devices. Yeah. But I don't think this is just, I don't think this is, um, uh, Marco Rubio just flapping his wings to, you know, get attention or something. Like, I really, I really think there's a, this is a big issue. Well, and that, that, uh, bill passed the Senate unanimously, right? Like that. And, and, uh, by the way, TikTok is now banned on Montana state government devices too. Um, but, uh, uh, Governor Greg Gianforte in Montana uh, issued an executive order earlier this week and, um, uh, banned on government devices, banned on government uh, networks, so not accessing over the Wi-Fi, and then also um, uh, banned on t- on on basically company time, right? So even if I'm on my own device at work, uh, my eyes shouldn't be on TikTok. And you know, I you you made a very good case there, actually, Wes, about the um, the the fact that there is an anon- seemingly seemingly anonymous uh, strategy here for how a log- or logarithmically uh, I almost got that word out. I'll do it. Uh, yes. Thank you. Um, uh, 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 how that happens, and it's it is unclear. And I would also note, for the record, too, that um, I saw a lot of or, or a lot of a lot of TikTok stories uh, three or four weeks ago about a lot of content creators that were aiming their content at younger voters to try to get them out to vote. Uh, when you did things like. Uh, uh, encourage people to, to go out and vote and, and, and engage the political process that, that they felt like they were getting either deplatformed in some cases or shadow banned is what some of the, the younger creators like to talk about or, um, even, uh, to the point of which their accounts, uh, started becoming, um, uh, unlog, unlog, unlog And now I'm making up other words, but the point is, is that there is something that's, that's really there. The part that I can't wrap my brain around about that particular piece is that I, you know, the youth, um, I just said the words, the youth, the youth, the young uh, people, you know, the young the, kids, the youngins, the youths, um, are absolutely enor- enamored with that platform, right? And, um, and again, tons are, you're exactly right, that a ton of folks are, are, 
um, using that as a primary news source and a primary way to research. And the articles that um, I wanted to share uh, was a couple things um, uh, that some folks are arguing the parents themselves should be very concerned about TikTok. Um, and by the way, every parent I know that has a kid under the age of 18, I, I'm hearing a lot of good strategies about, uh, you know, keeping an eye on their kids' TikTok account. They follow them on TikTok and once in a while they'll grab their kids' phone and ask to kind of sniff around their TikTok account. Um, Mark Warner is the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And so that's a serious thing, right? And they get access to stuff that we'll never see as, as, as regular U.S. citizens. Uh, that's something that, um, uh, uh, is concerning. And as Warner says in his article from the Hill, all that data that your child's inputting and receiving is being stored somewhere in Beijing, uh, adding it's difficult to separate out TikTok from the fact that they're, that the actual engineers are writing the code are in China. And, um, you know, part of that seems xenophobic to me, right? But at the same time, um, it is concerning because there are way less transparency rules uh, in, in China than there are in other parts of the world. That or, said, or youth protection. We talked about, yeah. you, you know, COPA, FERPA, um, you know, uh, uh, whatever that game is that people play. <laughs> we're getting so I'm getting so old. What the heck? Fortnite, yeah, we started we started off the conversation yeah. talking about that, and those kinds of restrictions do not apply within China to their companies. And then at the same time, um, I shared a couple articles this week from um, the uh, Neiman Labs. It's a, a journalism nonprofit that are are sharing their predictions for for twenty twenty three, and actually the whole list of predictions uh, is incredibly interesting of what. Uh, P, uh, journalists and, and thinkers in the journalism space are, th are, are thinking uh, are thinking is going to happen in 2023. But um, one of their scholars, uh, Jaden uh, Amos, uh, who is an audience editor at Axios, talked about how um, uh, that she thought that that TikTok personality journalists will continue to rise. And um, I follow a couple of them myself. In fact, I kind of like the, the journalist um, uh, uh, personalities on TikTok. They tend to dig down into things and they present it in an interesting and bite-sized way. Um, and I'm, you know, a uh, uh, couple months short, well, eight months short of nine months, 10 months short of 50. And I'm, I like TikTok for, for that purpose, right? I also read a lot of news otherwise, but it's at the same time as all this hand-wringing, which may be legitimate, and Senator Mark Warner, the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, says it is legitimate, other people are finding space here. And it's not like the functionality isn't everywhere now, right? Because everyone uh, is is into TikTok-like functionality. You can find it on Reddit. You can find it on Instagram. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Facebook. There are short video scrollable things that look just like TikTok everywhere, and yet the kids are on TikTok, so TikTok is the platform. What do you call it when you take that idea and you're going to go jump onto another one? There's a phrase for that. I'm going to... Uh. I think it's fascinating the way in which we're seeing journalists either be amplified for individual channels or not. Certain publications, when you click a journalist's ID, their, well, their name, sometimes it'll flat out have their, it used to have, and, and some still do, their Twitter account. Yep. Sometimes when you click on them, it'll only show the articles they write for the publication. In other words, the publication won't 
want to be amplifying their individual account. I think, by the way, this is an, an absolutely wonderful media literacy skill to utilize, and, and it would be good to teach people how to do this. Like when I share something on Twitter, I always try to use that journalist's actual Twitter ID. I'm, do, try, I'm doing the same thing as I can with Mastodon, but it takes a little bit more effort. But that gives you the possibility that the very author that wrote that article is going to see, maybe you're just retweeting it. But many times I'll make a comment or, or something like that. And I'm like, I'm interacting with actual journalists on a daily basis. Like, that's really cool. Sometimes asking a question and getting some clarification or whatever. Yep. Um, but, you know, this is not universal. I just saw this week ProPublica share a Mastodon post that linked all these different journalists. And so, like, I was able to individually follow each one. And then I also added them to a journalist list. Now on Macedon, you can't publicly see other people's lists. It's a private list, but it's wonderful. And that toot app, I just tap at the top. Oh, look, I'm going to look at my journalists. Oh, now I want to look at space. Oh, now I want to look at media literacy. Like the time, which I showed you with screen time, the time invested in that really pays dividends because it's filtering the feed. Anyway, I think it's fascinating that we do not have, you know, universal consensus on whether, let's say, I guess a publication like the New York Times wants everybody to just go to the New York Times and not allow people to individually, you know, go to those journalists. But what you're saying about TikTok, it makes a lot of sense to me. I see, especially my own daughters, I don't get to hang out with our son that much, although he's here now. They love watching videos on TikTok and they mm -hmm. love watching YouTube. They spend a ton of time there. And so this whole idea of video and you develop a relationship with someone, you develop trust, and then that person is a conduit for potentially all kinds of ideas. So I think that's fascinating. And the Neiman Lab, I don't think I have it on my phone, but on my iPad, they've got, uh, do you have their app? Is that what you're using to get to their stuff? Or do you just find it on Google News? Or how'd you find that article? Do you remember? Uh, which article? The Neiman uh, Lab. Oh, I, I I think it popped up on when I was uh, searching for more articles regarding AI and education. And that's, by the way, there's a ton of wonderful other predictions um, on, on those pages that I think are, are, are super interesting, including one I shared elsewhere on this list. Okay, I'm going to put a link into this. Neiman Lab is one. There's another one. I don't have my iPad with me, but they call it Fuego. And so this is just a great aggregated list. A lot of this has to do with uh, journalism. Um, but, you know, just like I'll check Google News and, you know, I used to check Nuzzle. You know, now I'll, I'll, um, I'll check my Mastodon or I'll check Twitter. Um, it's a good resource. And, and so anyway, just commend that. Okay, and there was another uh, TikTok-related one as well. That was the journalist ready to rise. Uh, yes, and that other article... You said the parents one. Uh, that's it, yeah. The Kaspersky one, maybe. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So there is a pretty good page, and, you know, Kaspersky is... They're still a Russian a, a Russian company, right? Indeed. So, you know, take this for what you will, but I thought it was a really interesting discussion about... Um, you know, how safe is TikTok, right? Is it safe to use? And, um, you know, they do a pretty good job of listing what the, the privacy concerns are. Uh, like many other social media 
platforms like Facebook quoting the article. TikTok collects a lot of information about its users, including every TikTok video you watch and for how long, the entire contents of every message you send through the app, since messages are not encrypted, your country or location, internet address, and type of device you're using. And if you give it permission, your exact location, your phone's contacts, which I've never done, by the way. That right there. That's huge. I've held yep. off. It continues to prompt yep. me every me time too. I share. Please, can we share contacts? Please. Can we? And I, I told on the show one time, the first time I got on to, uh, what was the audio? Clubhouse. Yeah. Clubhouse. I was just signing up, signing up. Yes, yes. And it popped up. Can we access your contacts? Yes. And I'm like, damn. Yeah. You know, because... If we were able to see into the opaque cloud of information and data about each one of us, which, by the way, in 2023, there's a rumor Dr. Neifer and Dr. Fryer may try to purchase and find on the dark web the information <laughs> that is out there. Right. And, and we'll, let, let's write an article and I'll get in. Well, I'm not going to say that, but <laughs> I think writing articles would be great for my future. Uh, who knows? Um, anyway, it's uh when you give people access to more meta information about yourself, like there was this whole thing with the government. Well, meta information is not that big a deal. We're not really getting lots of information. Oh, really? You know, politician so-and-so, you made a phone, you, you know, you made five phone calls last week to this strip club. You, you know, right. I don't, I don't, whatever. There's all kinds of things that we are revealing about ourselves. And so, yes, that's a long list of things that, we should be concerned about, but most young people, and I think even most adults are just sort of like, meh, you know, whatever. We, we just share that information. What's, what's the big deal? It's yep. not hurting me, you know? I'm getting to use this free app that I like. It's great. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, these issues keep getting more complex and not less complex. And I think that's part of what makes all this, you know, kind of hard to think about is that, um, you know, I, I hearken back to the days when, um, you know, we were debating about, um, uh, you know, will blogs ruin journalism, right? Which they, they, they didn't. What ruined journalism was probably free content, uh, uh, as it turns out, uh, as part of that process. But um, there's uh, these, they get a little more complex every week. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and if anybody listening um, is reading other articles, you know, related to, to TikTok, I think that discussions around TikTok and, and I almost had the name of the, of the word um, when you tag onto something and you talk about something else. Um, just video and the role of video, the importance of being savvy video consumers and the, the need to attend to what sources we are ingesting uh, on a repeated basis and what kinds of issues they're speaking into. I don't, I don't know. I think the, the, the information landscape is so fractured and polluted. And I don't think that in school, and I don't know that parents, I don't know that any of us have adequate opportunities today to talk about these issues, which is one of the reasons I love getting together with Jason each week as we wrestle with these. But I agree with you. It's not getting simpler. And, you know, it's not like we've reached a point where like, Okay, well, now social media has figured that one out and we're all good. It's, you know, it becomes more and more widespread uh, and, and, and there, there's more unintended consequences as a result of, of more and more wider use and, um, you know, the, the long term implications. And I think that's where the government comes down on this is they're saying, number one, there's all this personal information in that article that they're collecting about you. And then number two, it's the control of information flow. 
And that, as if you've watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix, and if you haven't watched it, what are you doing with yourself in the evening? Are you really watching bowl games? I'm watching one right now. Um, <laughs> my dad put it on. Um, but yeah. Whatever, it, Wes. It is, yeah. No, hey, I like football. I do. Um, it's important to recognize that the folks who control the flows of information have huge influence over society and culture. And that, you know, has, has played out and does play out in a lot of different ways. We can individually filter our feeds and curate lists of folks that we follow uh, and perhaps be slightly less influenced as a blind sheep to all of that. But hey, media literacy, it's important. And I i just would, I'd love to know if people are getting to have more conversations about TikTok. And maybe that'll be something I'll take back to school. I don't need to sign up for more things to do. But I really loved <laughs> the parent universities that we did yeah. at my previous school. And especially because sometimes we would bring kids in and they would talk and show what they're, who the influencers they're following, how they made choices about what they watched. It's just if you have a teen or teenager in your house or you have access to one, you know, it's fascinating to get a window literally into their media world. And I think that's a very rich conversation that we need to be doing more often, um, not just with our own children, you know, but with other kids. And I think we need that as adults. We are in the business of literacy. I don't care if you teach English or not. Every single one of us is in the business of trying to help kids become more literate and become more capable human beings and citizens. And if we are ignoring TikTok specifically and video more generally today in the in the huge important roles it plays in our information lives, then I think we kind of have our head in the sand. So and I appreciate you, Jason. You're you're the one that got me into barbecue TikTok. And, <laughs> and even through that, you know, I, there's just a lot of things that we learn, even if we're just dipping our toe. And I'm not I am not joining. How many different social networks that compete with Twitter could we be on today? Right. There's yeah. Like, 30 or something. Yeah. Know. And I joined like four of them in the last five months, in, in, including Mastodon. Yeah. Okay. We got uh, about 10 minutes. Yeah. Let me kind of cover some. Actually, this is an interesting story. Hey, speaking of rabbit holes, um, this is from NBC New York. And I've, I've heard the story four or five times over in the last 48 hours. But um, something weird happened uh, the other day. Um, a, uh, an attorney, um, her name's Kelly Conlon, uh, went to, uh, a Radio City Music Hall and, uh, was going to see, I think like a holiday, uh, rocket show. It was a Christmas spectacular show. And, um, she came in and, um, uh, uh, went through security as, as, as was required and, um, uh, uh, some security officials, uh, uh, pulled her aside and said that, um, uh, uh, you know, we, we need you to produce identification and tell me, um, uh, who you are. And the, uh, what she was told was that she had been banned from, um, uh, uh, the Radio City Music Hall. So, uh, they start to dig down into it and they bring someone out who tells her that the reason why she was banned is because there's currently the, the, the parent company of Radio City Music Hall is Madison Square Garden Entertainment. And, um, she is an attorney at a law firm in New Jersey 
whose uh, New York office is currently suing something somewhere with Madison Square Garden. And so because she was counsel at the uh, the law firm, uh, not the same branch, not the, she's not on this case at all. She's got no pending legislation against Madison Square Garden um, Entertainment. Wow. Um, and she was told that she was banned. And uh, that sounds absolutely like China. Oh, yeah, it does. And it, was, and it was facial recognition, by the way. That's how they discovered wow. her, right? Wow. Um, and uh, so what I thought was super interesting was that uh, Madison Square Garden Entertainment released a statement that said, Madison Square Garden instituted a straightforward policy that precludes attorneys pursuing active litigation against the company from attending events at our venues until that litigation has been resolved. While we understand this policy is disappointing for some, we cannot ignore the fact that litigation creates an inherently er, uh, uh, adverse environment. All impacted attorneys were notified of the policy, including the law firm that she worked at, which was notified twice. And, that's a thing, right? And, um, you know, facial recognition, which is becoming uh, a thing, not just, uh, in, in, in large commercial spaces. I know there's a lot of debate about facial recognition in schools, facial recognition, um, in airports, facial recognition in other, you know, very public places. But, um, uh, I thought that was a pretty interesting article and, um, you know, uh, probably coming to a security line near you. Wow. I could talk more, but let's go on to some other things. You got okay, sure. Of, you got a lot of AI articles. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I just wanted to share that um, I have been, been reading a lot of AI articles in the last two weeks. And in fact, uh, since we, we talked last last week, I've actually shared a lot of AI information with colleagues um, across state virtual schools. And also I've put on some information on, on Twitter. I do know uh, that there are now AI uh, sniffing uh, tools that you can copy and paste uh, something generated by AI to see if it fits patterns of looking like it was generated by AI, right? So that that's a step in the right direction to help us understand this better. But there are a lot of interesting articles about AI um, that are starting to question, um, you know, kind of the direction we're going into. So I do have a wakelet that I've made where I'm, I'm sticking all the articles that I think have any, uh, a merit. I've pinned this also to my Twitter account. I also pinned it to my Mastodon account. Uh, if you're interested in, in seeing the results, um, of my research. Um, but, um, there's a couple things, uh, uh, that I think are also kind of worth noting. Um, first of all, that same Neiman lab, um, uh, uh, page that I shared earlier, the reason why I ended up on the, the, uh, one about TikTok was that, um, uh, Corey, let's see, Corey Bergman, who's the co, co the co-founder of Fractal, um, said that it, you know, coming to an internet near you is that there's going to be a massive proliferation of, of artificial intelligence generated content in the coming months and years. And again, that's not necessarily good or bad, but as the article says, AI written content will flood the internet in a logomation of the work of millions of human writers and journalists who came before it. And um, it's interesting because I've heard this argument a lot, that one of the problems with AI is that they fed it, you know, shocking amounts of human knowledge, um, you know, whether it's images or um, uh, articles or pages on the Internet in order to kind of train AI. And some people feel like that it's stealing. But 
then again, if you ever go to a museum, you're going to see a lot of art students with their big notepads or, or art pads sitting out and, and, and pencils sketching uh, uh, other artists uh, or images from other artists because that's how you learn, right? And a lot of art is uh, influenced substantially by other artists. And that doesn't seem to be a problem, but but this does. And I get there's a big difference there, but this is exactly the kind of issue that we need to be thinking about um, as we allow kind of more AI into our lives. I'm going to put this one in. I saw you uh, are using Wakelet to track these articles about AI and education. I'm gonna. I'll go out on a limb here. Is this our last show for the year, or we have another? We have another one last next week, I guess. Yeah. yeah. We can do predictions maybe next year or next next one. But I think that generative AI, which are the AR platforms which are able to generate text and content, write essays, generate images, that is going to be the most disruptive thing that we see in 2023, and it's not going to wait till the fourth quarter, like. The things oh, yeah. that I have seen and experienced in the last four weeks, uh, I did get that Mastodon, you know, tips thing out. But the other, well, there's two things that I want to do screencasts, and I will. I'm going to do something about North Carolina and the, the terrorist attacks, which is apparently what they were against the power grid, because that's not getting the kind of mainstream media coverage that it absolutely deserves. Um, but then the other one is about AI and these different tools, and it is um, – you know, you said not good or bad. I think we can say, I, I will say for sure, very disruptive because it's not only challenging, as you said, creativity and artists and people who said, I didn't allow, you know, I didn't get permission for these AI machine learning algorithms to train on, on my, my artwork or, or my uh, photography or whatever, but also just the essay and the way in which students are going to be able to use these tools and the ways we as teachers need to know about them and the opportunity that gives us to rethink assessment. So, yeah, totally. Well, and I also think that, that one of the risks here is that we react poorly to this, right? And, and, and we don't try to harness its power first as opposed to immediately ban or start to create kind of weird assumptions. Um, I know a lot of talk of everything is there that, that, that some schools are already thinking about, you know, going to handwriting everything. Um, the experiment that I created last week that I uh, took us actually took a screencast of and shared with some colleagues was I found uh, a, um, a worksheet on teachers pay teachers, a free worksheet on teachers pay teachers. Uh, I was looking for something that, you know, was maybe not the, the most, um, high level, uh, resource, right? Something you might do in a pinch or something maybe, um, that you're, when you're just very basically teaching stuff. And this was, um, uh, uh, a social studies based, uh, a set of lessons. And, um, I typed all the questions into, uh, Canva's, uh, magic right. So that's AI generated and it created answers that were quite solid and correct, right? Um, about the Supreme Court, uh, uh, name three reasons why you would do X, name three reasons why you would do Y, and it, it generated them all. Um, and then today, um, I, uh, 
uh, our my my entire staff worked uh, at home today because it was uh, 27 degrees below zero when we woke up this morning. So uh, we had planned on working at home and we had a pretty good banter going in our group chat today. And um, we've been kind of laughing because if you use uh, Google chat, the um uh, the kind of Slack knockoff that, that Google uses is what we use to, to keep in communication at work. It's got a funny new feature where it uses AI to tell you what you've missed um, in the chat. So if you go back after eight hours, it's going to Slack kinda, does that? Uh, no, this is Google Chat has that. And Slack Google may have it too. Chat. Oh yeah. My so the, the Slack alternative Google Chat part. And it's pretty funny because it'll say things like... Um, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so wished good morning. And so-and-so asked a question about um, uh, what the what the low temperature is going to be later, that sort of thing. So I, I made a, a funny conversation. I said I kept waiting for Google a Google summary of this conversation. Uh, everyone complained about the weather. Uh, X and X prepared or are preparing for Festivus, including me. And Y talked about his friend's uh, wolf wound. And uh, one of my colleagues said, Jason, I would like a, an AI rendering of about a cold day on Festivus with werewolves. And so I had Canva write me a short story about werewolves and Festivus. And, and you can create the image that's going to go on your blog exactly. post with uh, MidJourney, and it'll that's look amazing. The, yes, that's the next thing I did. And I used uh, Fotor, F-O-T-O-R, to do it. Um, which is a, it's got a pretty good engine. Um, it's werewolf, uh, uh, stuff wasn't super great, I will say, but, um, you did know, that, that generate, did that generate the image or did you just make your own prop of it? Uh, no, it generated the image. Fotor, F-O-T-O-R? Yeah, it's got an AI generative feature now. Wow. And, um, and it's, it's pretty legit. I mean, some of the things are weird and creepy, but, uh, pretty legit. Um, and, and then eventually I, 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 I shared a picture with my colleagues of a werewolf taking an online class. Um, and then my colleagues harassed me, like, maybe it's time for you to take Christmas break. So, um, the bottom line is, is that, um, there's a lot going on here, right? And oh I don't, and there's, there's a deeper discussion than, you know, now that we're a minute over our hour, there's a deeper discussion to be had here. And I think AI is something that, well, I mean, what's what's stunning about this is that five months ago, the the chat platforms that are powering a lot of these AI machines were interesting, but not that interesting. They were funny. They were yeah, they, they, they were, were like, a threat. Ha ha! That doesn't work. Oh, those right. silly people talking about AI. That's not going to do anything. And now, um, not only, uh, are there, you know, AI based writing that can, and, and everything I've put into the Canva, uh, the Canva magic write feature, um, is, is pretty good, uh, what it creates. Um, and then I've also been using, uh, and I think I mentioned this last week, a lex.page is another, um, AI writer. It's shtick is that it takes what you're writing. And when you get writer's block, it says you can press the plus sign three times and it continues to write on your behalf. So I stuck five paragraphs of my doctoral dissertation in there and then had it write a sixth and seventh paragraph. As it turns out, they were pretty good sixth and seventh paragraphs, right? Um, and again, I'm not saying that AI is cheating. I'm not saying that this is a plagiarism thing. It's that, but it's not. It's, it's that there's just a lot going on here that I'm not entirely certain um, uh, we're prepared for what's coming next. Here's what I'm sure about. Our, one of our jobs 
as educators and members of our community is to try to not fan the flames of fear, yes, but to help people be more rational and thoughtful about change. Because what we're one among many things, one of the things we're talking about here is rapid, discontinuous, disruptive change. Yep. And so, as you are able to give a keynote at in any in in. CCE, you know, this spring, and as any of us are are talking with colleagues, I think the low-hanging fruit is going to be to do a shock and awe demo that strikes fear in the heart of everyone yep. and convinces them the sky is falling, all the kids are going to be able to use AI tools to write their essays, we're, you know, we're all done, let's just resign, I don't know, uh, what, your, what the concept, what the, but I think that this is why the conversations are important about it. I think when we share these tools, we need to give people opportunities to, to discuss and talk about it. And I think that we would be well served to steer those conversations in constructive ways, like how will this, how can this help us improve assessment? Like how, how can this help yeah. us? get better because that's sort of a question of cognitive dissonance in this, because I think, again, the logical thing is going to be, wow, the world is blowing up and AI. I mean, there are people saying this, right? There's people saying we're going to have artificial general intelligence within now 16 months and we are going to have a job uh, labor disruption of like 50% across white collar um, jobs. That's going to be happening in the next five to 10 years. I don't know. Maybe that is going to happen. But if everyone is just having their adrenaline and whatever happens to you when you have a fight or flight response, whatever that is, anyway, it's going to be easy well, to have that response. And so I, I think that to the degree we can, we, we want to try to steer folks towards the more constructive conversations around this. But that's going to be hard. It is going to be hard. And I've been asked this question three times in the last two weeks when I've gotten into conversations about this, which was basically, what are you bringing to the party work-wise that can't be replaced by uh, uh, AI? Mm -hmm. And that's caused me to think quite a bit. Um, and again, it's a little bit of an unfair question because there's lots of jobs that exist that could be easily automated or easily replaced. But the bottom line is, is that you know, people, are, there, there's lots of ways that people are still required for an awful lot of things we do inside of our, our culture and, and our democracy and our financial setup. But man, does it really, I think, stretch the imagination to start thinking in that way. And then I want to make one last comment about kind of the writing piece. And then I, I would imagine that, that we will continue on this discussion next time. But I'll give you a really good example of this. Um, I... Uh, I've been asked to write a letter recommendation for a colleague uh, for uh, uh, an award. And so I'm going to, um, and she's awesome, but I joked with her and sent her the screenshot because I had a um, uh, uh, magic write on Canva, write me the recommendation letter. I said, please write a six paragraph recommendation letter for so-and-so for the so-and-so award and uh, legitimate. Uh, uh, not, it wasn't specific, to 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 her but it was good enough and so i said write a six paragraph recommendation for me so my name for the so-and-so award and it was clear that um 
it was clear that it wasn't accessing any internet information, right? I'm not famous enough. My colleague is not famous enough to do that. But I liked the way it, it worded some of this stuff, right? It's my pleasure to recommend Jason Eifer for consideration for the blank award. I have had the privilege of knowing and working with Jason over the past five years and contest to his commitment to excellence in teaching. Uh, Jason's been a teacher for the past 15 years, teaching high school English, incor- well, p- teaching for the past 15 years, incorrect, teaching high school English, incorrect, in our district, incorrect. He has a passion uh, for teaching that's evident in the classroom and his interactions with the students. Like these are things I would nice things I'd say about people. Right. And that's where, um, you know, I again, I I do small social media contracts uh, occasionally. And sometimes I get tired of saying that we're really excited. We're really excited or welcome new colleague or so, you know, I'll go on and find a list of 50 ways to say thank you or 50 ways to say welcome or 50 ways to say congratulations. And, um, you know, and that's a search engine that I'm using here. And in a lot of ways, AI is a very nuanced search engine, right? I don't know where the stuff is coming from. And that's a little concerning in itself, right? But, I, yeah, a lot to think about. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, sadly... I think we probably should geek of the weekend. Yep, let's do it. Uh, I have a quick one to share here um, because I know that I was actually uh, planning on one point to travel uh, today and tomorrow uh, via air, or airplane for a quick trip. I'm totally glad I didn't because flights are getting canceled uh, with reckless abandon in the Pacific Northwest for sure, especially I mostly fly in and out of Seattle and it's it's not so hot there. But I want to share a tool that I've used uh, at least three times with canceled flights to find hotel rooms. Um, I am unlucky in that a lot of my canceled flights are not the responsibility of the airline. It's the responsibility of um, uh, weather. So there's no room involved if my flight gets gets canceled and I'm stuck in Seattle, uh, Salt Lake, Denver, Minneapolis overnight. Um, And there's a really great app and website. It is called a hotel tonight. And it's not, um, it's not the way I would buy a hotel usually, but it tells you, you know, what are deals, deals on hotel right near you tonight. And I've literally gone to that app. I'm, you know, sitting in Seattle uh, airport at 845 and my flight's been canceled or I missed my connecting flight. My next one is, is the next morning at 10 AM, the airlines unwilling to pick up a room for me. So I just use hotel tonight. Um, and I've picked up pretty decent deals on hotel rooms and, um, sometimes that can make all the difference, especially if you're in an instance like, uh, right now where lots of flights are getting canceled and a lot of people are getting stuck, having that instant access, having all your credit card information in there, you know, having the app set up so that you, the minute you know you need it, you can buy this hotel room has saved me uh, a couple of times. So hotel tonight's the tool. I hope I will not have to use that tomorrow. Yeah, but I won't say more about that currently. I'll give you a report next week. Uh, My Geek of the Week is a Mastodon link. One of the wonderful ways that I have used If This Then That and Twitter for a few years now is that when I tweet with the hashtag EdTechSR, If This Then That automatically appends that tweet and the link that it contains to a Google document. And so my workflow for Wednesday night is to open up that document and scan through and see the things that I want to move over. Well, there is not, to my knowledge, yet a Mastodon service. I think you have to create your own app and it's pretty geeky and I haven't tried it yet to do the same thing for Mastodon. But you can, after your Mastodon instance, which is your server, slash your username, 
you can go slash tagged slash whatever hashtag. And that is going to show you a reverse chronological list of every time you have used said hashtag. So that's what I used tonight to find some of the articles that we talked about. Um, and we'll continue the conversation because I think that I have, I think I've reached the point where Mastodon is going to become my primary wow. social media. So, um, it'll be, yeah, dear, you've bought two. We'll compare notes next week and, uh, love to find out what other people are, are using and doing with respect to this because it is early adopter days, but, um, Twitter was as well in 2006 and 2007. And some people would say as it became more and more mainstream, maybe <laughs> it got worse. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, Dr. Fryer, uh, you just answered this actually, but where can people find you on the internet? Well, just go to westfriar.com slash after, and you'll find more links than you will probably want to follow. How about you? Um, I am still available on Twitter, and then, um, I don't know, go find uh, uh, Dr. Fryer's after and go to his Mastodon, and you'll find me somewhere around there, too. But It's knife. It's knife. It's knife at mastodon.cloud. So um, so I guess that, that is pretty easy. kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Um, well... <laughs> This isn't Mastodon. This is the Edit Situation Room. We're a once-a-week podcast. Sometimes we're on Wednesdays. Sometimes we're on Thursdays. Um, this is as much about us as it is about you. So sometimes we have to move things around. Um, we are certainly uh, live when we, we broadcast. But if you don't catch us live, although we wish you would sometime, find us on Twitter at EdTechSR. Find us soon on Mastodon at our unset-up Mastodon EdTechSR page. You can go to our webpage, EdTechSR.com. We also find links to YouTube and Facebook where we're archiving and also broadcasting live there or wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. Um, we hope you have a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful holiday break. Happy holidays to you and your family. And we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Yeah. And happy Festus. And happy Festivus tomorrow. Yes, that's right.